This is Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. And the best person to get an answer like that from would be Jesus. At Line Upon Line, we answer your Bible questions. Thanks for submitting them. In addition to that answer, open the book of Revelation. God wants you to be ready for the second coming of Jesus. And He wants you to have assurance about being ready for the second coming of Jesus. This is Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. I'm John Bradshaw, with me Eric Flickinger. Eric, welcome to the program. Thanks, we've got a lot more questions today. Line Upon Line is about your questions. You send them to us and we answer them. At It Is Written, we receive a slew of Bible questions and this gives us an opportunity to answer them. We, we intend from the Word of God, we'll do our very best. And if you'd like to get, if, you'd, if someone would like to get a question to us, what's the best way to do that? The uh, best way to do that is to send us an email, lineuponline at iiw.org. We'll get the question from you to us, and we're going to endeavor to get it right back to you now. Cabrita emailed us. She wrote, is there life on other planets? What do you say? Well, uh, this is one of those where we don't have a whole lot of Bible passages to share with you. We can make some, uh, some educated guesses, I suppose. The only thing that we really know about other planets is what scientists have been able to tell us thus far. Uh, but there are a lot of Bible scholars who come to the possible conclusion, I think they may be uh, onto something, that the universe is vast. And to assume that we are the only inhabited planet in the entirety of the universe is maybe being a little bit full of ourselves. One thing that I've heard people say is that in the book of Job where it says the sons of God came before God, mm-hmm. uh, early in the book of Job, that this could be representatives of other worlds, other inhabited worlds. It doesn't say that, but people have speculated that it could be. And, and it makes a lot of sense because when Satan is asked why he's there, he says, I've come from walking to and fro on the earth. In other words, this is my ticket in. I'm the representative of the planet earth. I heard somebody say once too, uh, the good shepherd who left the 99 sheep and went off searching for the one lost sheep could be said to represent Jesus leaving unfallen worlds and coming to seek this one lost world. Now, we just said we've heard people say, because the Bible isn't explicit, although very clearly you can build a case. So this is one of those things that we'll certainly find out when we get to heaven. Uh, It's an interesting question for now, and Cabrita, we really appreciate it. What's next? Next question comes from James, and James asks, when God creates a new heaven and a new earth, will he give us new minds as well, or will we keep our current minds? Oh, good question, and it depends on what you mean by mind. What we take from this world into the world to come is our character, no question about that. You don't receive a new character. Someone might say, we have the same mind, because as the Bible says, be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. So if your mind has been renewed here, then you take that mind to heaven, accept that, Right now, no matter who you are, your mind is fraught with troubles and trials. You have stresses and you have difficulties. There are things that weigh down on you. There are perplexities. We won't have them in heaven. So things will be a little bit different. What we can tell you for certain is that you take into the world to come the character that you develop in this world. So it's a good idea to develop all the character you can and to give your mind to Jesus that he lives in you in this world. If he lives in you in this world, undoubtedly, He will live in you in the world to come. Thank you very much. Good question. Here's a question from Sharon. Just because a person goes to a nightclub, does that mean that they have a bad character? 
that's kind of narrowing things. If a person goes to a nightclub, there are probably a lot of unwise choices that people make on a regular basis. I've made one or two, probably not three, but one or two unwise choices Amen. over the years. Um, my guess is perhaps you've made one or two unwise choices over the years as well. Spending time in a nightclub might fall into that category. Now, does that mean that a person who makes an unwise choice is a, has a bad character, as Sharon asks the question? No, they made a bad choice. You don't want to habitually make bad choices. You want to make habitually good choices by the grace of God. Uh, nightclubs may not be the very best place to spend your time. Yeah, I'll go out on a limb and I'll tell you what Eric is thinking. Eric is thinking, yes, there are a lot of people who go to nightclubs who just have uh, bad folks, bad eggs, bad character. That's true for people who go to the racetrack. It's true for people who go to bars. And it's also true for people who go to the supermarket. So while you're going to go to a nightclub and find some rough individuals, you'll find them at the symphony as well probably different individuals, but you'll find people with, with rough characters no matter where you go. But what we don't want to do is say, oh, she went to the nightclub, so she's bad. He went to a bar, so he's bad. Maybe not. As Eric said, it may just be an unwise decision. Or it may be that someone actually made a wise decision and accompanied somebody to be a designated driver or to keep somebody out of trouble. You know how it goes. I think the thing is, some decisions aren't smart, but judging others isn't smart either. So we'll do our best not to judge others, all right? We have an interesting question. This one's from Emily. And Emily asks, how do people with mental disabilities repent and believe? The Bible tells us that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, the um, category that you've given us here, people with mental disabilities. Now, uh, that varies, you know. So I'm going to say that many people with mental disabilities flat out believe in Jesus just on the same level that you do uh, and repent and believe the same way as you do. But there are some people who are profoundly disabled. So what does God do in situations like that? Well, in each of those situations, God is going to take that person where they are, in fact, much like he takes us. All right. Uh, each of us has a level of understanding of truth and who Jesus is. And some of our levels of understanding are better than other people's. Uh, those individuals who may have some sort of a mental disability may be further down the scale than some others, and God's going to take their understanding and what they've done with that uh, into account, just as He would do with us. Yeah, see, what, God, what God's in the business of doing is He's in the business of saving people. So let's ask the question, who's going to be lost? People who are lost, now, now, now you're going to say sinners will be lost. Ah, but careful because we've all sinned. So what kind of sinners will be lost? Unrepentant sinners. So let's say there's somebody who's disabled to the extent that they, they aren't able to really repent. What do you think God does? Again, we're going to look at this from as sensible a position as we can. God's trying to crowd people into heaven, not crowd them out. And if there's an individual who has not sinned against God and has not failed to repent against God, we have no good reason to believe that that person will be lost. Now, careful that you didn't hear Pastor Bradshaw say everyone in that category is going to be saved because I can't say that. God knows. But if we're looking at situations, we say, you know, lost people are those who fail to repent, who shunned and pushed away the mercy and the grace of God. So unless somebody fits in that category, we think that God is going to be very favorable towards uh, that person. Good question. Him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him 
it is sin. Yeah, really good verse to use at a time like We've this. We've got another great question here. This one comes from Ryan. And Ryan says, how does positive thinking work in the Christian's life? And how does faith work into this when facing trials in life? Okay, another broad question. Let me see if I can answer this or let us see if we can answer this. Positive thinking. The Bible says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Not a suggestion. In fact, it's a command, not one of the 10 commands, but this is a rejoinder upon humanity. Rejoice always, the Bible says. So we shouldn't get around, you know, down and, and, and negative and morbid and morose and so forth. Be as positive as, as you can. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, how about the power of positive thinking? Is there power in positive thinking? It's certainly better to think positive thoughts than negative ones. You, you start thinking negative thoughts and the more you think about them, it's a downward spiral and it'll just keep on dragging you downward. Now, positive thinking is not the solution. Uh, in fact, one of the reasons that, that it isn't is because that has a lot to do with feelings. Feelings kind of fluctuate. They go up, they go down. Good things happen, you feel good. Bad things happen, you feel bad. This is where faith comes in. That's right. And faith is not as fluctuating, or at least should not be as fluctuating as feelings. Faith should be more steady. And if you have faith in Christ that he can get you through crises in your life, you're going to find that you come through them a lot better. That's right. So things are going bad. Believe. You're having a rough day. Have faith. Seems like people have turned their back on you. Uh, financial issues, health challenges. Have faith. Uh, positive thinking is okay, but you, you know you don't uh, think positively towards salvation. You don't, you don't positively think your way into the graces of God. Faith lays hold on the promises of God. Faith believes that God is good. Faith believes you have a future no matter what. Be positive, but have faith. That's very important. Surely we have another question. We do. This one comes from James. And James says, if you are predestined, how do you know if God chose you? Interesting, isn't it, that somebody as bright as Calvin, as magnificent as Calvin, could give to the world predestination in that I sat on a plane with a fellow. Uh, and we got chatting, and he was a fine Christian guy, and we, we had a lot in common. And he shared with me the sort of the, the, the church that he attended. And I asked him about this and he said, yes, some people are predestined to be saved. You saved, nothing you can do about it. Mm. Me lost, nothing I can do about it. And he blames Calvin for this. And really Calvin's the one who gets a lot of credit. As brilliant as he was, Calvin had a blind spot and this was it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that... Only certain people? Uh, it doesn't say that. Mm gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, you see. So should you choose to have faith in Jesus, you don't perish. Well, where's the predestination there? Biblically speaking, God has predestined or chosen all of us to be saved. That's God's choice. The question then is whether or not we will accept that gift. Yeah. What's your choice? Can we look at this from the Bible? I think we can. Jesus was foreordained before the foundation of the world, according to 1 Peter 1 and verse 20. He created human beings in his own image, you read in the book of Genesis. There's no question. And you read in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4 that God our Savior desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. All. So could that mean all except the poor unfortunates. 
don't think it can. No, and it, this idea that God has already chosen who's going to be saved and who is going to be lost gives us a bit of a dilemma because that means that God brings people into existence and there's nothing that they can do to be saved. Can you imagine that? That seems a little bit unlike the God that we, that we find in the Bible. Uh, God gives us the opportunity to make decisions, to make choices. And it's up to us whether we want to accept that gift of salvation or to reject it. But he has made it possible for you, for me, for all of us to be saved if we want to be. Remember Hebrews 7 and verse 25, which says that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who come to him, or God rather, is able to save to the uttermost those who come to him through faith in Jesus Christ. Anyone who wants to be lost can be. Now, you're going to have to fight Jesus. You're going to have to fight off the Holy Spirit. You're going to have to fight off the grace of God. That's true. You're going to have to just fight him off. Anyone who wants to be saved can be. All it takes is allowing Jesus into your heart and into your life. There is not a single person who was born doomed to be saved, nor was there a single person born damned to be lost. We are born with God pulling for us, God purposing that we spend eternity with Him, and God's Spirit draws us, woos us, calls us to surrender so that we might yield to Christ and be saved. Fantastic questions. We'll have more coming up. This is Line Upon Line. We want to tell you, email us, lineuponline at iiw.org, lineuponline at iiw.org, and we would love to answer your Bible question as well. We'll be back with more in just a moment. While you're familiar with the It Is Written television program, I want to invite you on a journey to understand more about what It Is Written is doing to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. We're going to visit India, Mongolia, Guatemala, Moldova, Zimbabwe, the Philippines, and more. Work made possible by It Is Written missions. It Is Written mission teams regularly visit parts of the world where the need for Jesus is great. It might sometimes seem like a hopeless task a mission impossible, except that it isn't. It cannot be. This is mission possible because Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world. If you can't go there yourself, you can be there with It Is Written. Mission Possible. Watch now on itiswritten.tv. Planning for your financial future is a vital aspect of Christian stewardship. For this reason, It Is Written is pleased to offer free planned giving and estate services. For information on how we can help you, please call 800-992-2219. Call today or visit our website, hislegacy.com. Call 800-992-2219. Welcome back to Line Upon Line, where we are taking your Bible questions and finding some Bible answers. We've got some more questions, John. We have a good question here, and I want to see how you do with this. Tammy Sue asks, is it okay to attend parties and fiestas on the Sabbath? Ah, great question, Tammy. Uh, what should you do and what shouldn't you do on the Sabbath? Uh, 
This was something that Jesus got into no small amount of contention with the Pharisees about. Our best example is probably going to be Jesus' example and to see what he did and didn't do on the Sabbath. Now, we need to be careful here not to start making lists of thou shalts and thou shalt not. That can get a little bit uh, tedious, and it did in Jesus' day. But there are probably some good guidelines that we can set. When you take a look at the fourth commandment in Exodus chapter 20, very clearly we are told that we should not be doing any secular work on the Sabbath. We have six other days of the week to do that, but the Sabbath is God's holy day, and we should not be working on that day. Now, he doesn't talk about going to parties, but as you look consistently at Jesus' life and his ministry, you find that he was doing good on the Sabbath. It was his custom to be in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He would heal people on the Sabbath day. I don't recall him ever going to parties or fiestas on the Sabbath day, though. No, and as a matter of fact, the prophet Isaiah wrote something. I think that that helps us in Isaiah chapter 58. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord honorable, and honor him, not doing your own ways or finding your own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words, then shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord, and I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth and feed thee with the heritage of Jacob thy father, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Notice what God said, don't do your pleasure on the Sabbath. Now, I like to hang with my family. Oh, don't do that because that's pleasurable. I I like to eat. Don't do that because that's pleasurable. I like to walk, uh, take a beautiful walk on this. No, God's not saying that. But your own self-focused pleasure that really doesn't involve uh, that idea of Sabbath rest and worship. So, parties, what do you do? You know you pray, but if it's a riotous party with drink and drugs and fools and, and whatnot, it doesn't sound like a very Sabbathy thing to do. I'd advise you maybe to step back from that. You might have a situation where you say, oh my goodness, I just need to show my face for five minutes. It's a very, very important family event. Some people are going to say, nope, not under any circumstances. Others are going to say, I feel it's just the right thing to do, just to stop and say hi, pay my respects, and move on. Generally speaking, though, parties and fiestas? You're probably going to want to avoid them. Here's kind of a rule of thumb. If what you're considering doing on the Sabbath is going to draw you into a closer, deeper relationship with Christ, generally speaking, it's probably an appropriate activity. If what you're thinking about doing is going to distract you from your relationship with Him and draw your attention away from Him, then, generally speaking, it's probably an inappropriate activity for you to do on the Sabbath. And I know, again, we haven't made a long list of thou shalts and thou shalt nots, but hopefully these guidelines will give you uh, some help in making those decisions. Some people would like for us to just make a list. You can do this. You can't do that. Well, there are several reasons why we don't want to do that. Uh, A, because the, the Bible, with some exceptions, doesn't get down into the minutiae. Secondly, we don't want to come off as legalists because I believe we are not. Jesus wasn't, and the Bible's not a legalistic thing. And thirdly, if you have a specific event and you pray to God earnestly and ask God to guide you, He will lead you. And it's better to have God leading you than having a preacher tell you what you may and may not do. Okay, here's a good question, and it comes from Dave. What's the relationship between grace and faith? Are we saved by having faith in Jesus, 
or are we saved by grace? This is one question that we have a very clear biblical answer for. It's found in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the what? Gift, the gift of, of God. God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So Paul says, we are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, God's grace is something that he extends to us. Faith is something that we exhibit toward him to receive that, that grace. We don't save ourselves. There's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. Only God can save us. And so he extends that grace, that is forgiveness for our sins that we don't deserve, but we, we, he asks us to confess our sins if we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then we receive that gift of grace from him. That's how salvation comes. It's not either or, it's both and. Yeah. No one ever got saved without grace and no one ever got saved without faith. So we want to put these things together and that's the right balance. Mike writes, in Daniel 7 verse 3, it says the beasts come out of the sea. But in verse 17, it says the kings came from the earth. Can you explain this? Daniel chapter 7, verse 3 says, And four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. And then we drop down to verse number 17. It says, Those great beasts, which are four, are four kings which arise out of the earth. Uh, early in Daniel chapter 7, we're dealing with symbols. And later in Daniel 7, the symbols are explained. Uh, what did we read in verse 3? I mean, you just read it. Four great beasts. Well, what, what, what are these? These great beasts, which are four, it says later on in verse 17, are four kings. Uh, in verse 3, it says they come up from the sea. In Bible prophecy, sea represents multitudes of people. So here, they come out of the earth. Symbolically, they do come out of the sea. Literally, they do come out of the earth. No kingdom came. Wasn't, we're not talking about Atlantis here. So Daniel 7 verse 3, we're dealing with the symbol Further down in verse 17, we're dealing with something that represents an explanation of the symbol. And I think when we look at it that way, Mike, there is no conflict and there's no misunderstanding. Very good. We have a question now from Melissa, an interesting one. She says, when Noah took the clean animals on the ark, were they taken in by sevens or by fourteens? This is Genesis chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. It says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. You shall take with you seven each of every clean animal, a male and his female, two each of animals that are unclean, a male and his female, also seven each of birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of all the earth. When you take a look at the original Hebrew of this verse, this is Daniel chapter, or pardon me, Genesis chapter 7 and verse number 2, here's what, the, what it reads. Thou shalt take to thee seven seven, a male with his female. So the indication here is that those sevens are pairs, seven pairs, or probably 14 of each of the clean animals that were taken into the ark. And you gave a, an excellent explanation of, of probably why that was. Uh, Noah needed to have something to eat once the waters receded from the earth. There was no vegetation there anymore. And he also needed to have something to sacrifice. If you got rid of the, uh, of the unclean animals, that would be the end of that species. 
If you had seven of the clean, that would be taking a pretty big dent in, in that population as well. So it was probably 14 of the clean animals that went in. Hey, we've got time for one more question, Eric, and we're going to make this a heavy one. Thanks to Charles and timing. Charles writes, if we sin and die before we ask forgiveness, will we be lost? That's part one, and that's not really very heavy. Part two is heavy. We'll get to that in a moment. So this is the, 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 the theoretical, uh, uh, that's not the word I'm looking for. It's the hypothetical. Yes. So, so you had a good day and you got right with God and then you had a rough five minutes and you sinned and uh-oh, you just died. So how about that? Are we saved or lost? You know what? Don't worry about that. You know why? Because w- w- you're splitting hairs and here's what you do. You live turned towards God. If you refuse to repent and you push away the grace of God, that's one thing. If you're saying, I was right with God, I slipped on a banana peel and something came out that shouldn't have come out because of low blood sugar or my bad upbringing. You know, I understand the question. It's a fair question. It's even a good question, but it's a pedantic sort of a question. And really, it's better that you just say, I'm living directed towards Jesus. I've welcomed him into my heart. And that's the way I'm going to live. You know, God, as you've mentioned before, is in the business of saving people. He's not trying to lose people. And if a person's life is headed in the right direction, they've accepted Jesus as their Savior, they're living according to the light that He's given them, and they slip on the banana peel. He's not going to sit there and say, ah, you messed up, you said that word as you were mid-fall, and that's it. God wants to save people. He's not trying to lose them. Someone's going to say, but if you were really saved, you weren't going to say that word. You know what? Really? There are really saved people who make mistakes all the time because of the extenuating circumstances or because they failed and took their eyes off Jesus. So I think we just want to really encourage you to have a healthy outlook that says I'm hanging on to Jesus and he'll save me and mistakes happen, but God will forgive me and I'm growing and I'm growing and more of Jesus is coming to my life every day. Now, here's the heavy part, and we have seconds to answer this, and so we will. What about suicide? Can God forgive that? Well, we're going to be careful in how we answer this. God does not recommend suicide, and suicide is a sin, because the Bible says, thou shalt not kill. Frequently, suicide represents an absolute lack of faith and trust in God. Fair to say? Fair to say. Okay, okay. But let's be careful here. Because the truth of the matter is that very many times suicide happens as a result of mental illness. And I don't want to trivialize this, but you have physical illness and you throw up. That's a consequence of your upset stomach. Some people that have mental illness and a consequence of that is they just lose perspective and hope and everything is bleak and dark. And it's like they're being compelled to take their own lives. I'm not trying to make excuses for you, but I simply am telling you that that's how it is. And some people... It's just a tremendously hard, difficult cross to bear. And if you've never dealt with depression, then you just can't truly appreciate it. So let's allow God to be the final arbiter of somebody's situation with suicide. Let's leave that with God. Again, we don't recommend it. We would encourage you, don't go there. There is hope and faith in God. And we would say this, if you're struggling with mental illness, if you're struggling with depression, please get help. Is it enough to pray? Yeah, it's enough to pray. And if you pray, God will say, go get help. That's why there are doctors. We get help. And if you need help for depression or mental illness, we want you to know that you've got to get help. Reach out to others. Speak to a pastor. Speak to a medical person. 
and God would guide you to do that because he does not want you living with the crushing weight of depression. Heavy question. Heavy question. Yeah. And with that, we're really glad that you joined us for Line Upon Line brought to you by It Is Written. With Eric Flickinger, I am John Bradshaw, and we want to encourage you to send us your questions. Address. Line upon line at IIW.org, and we are looking forward to receiving your questions. And we're looking forward to seeing you again next time. Until then, thanks for joining us. God bless you. Mm-hmm.